Have, have you ever wondered if your prayers do anything? Have you ever considered, does God listen? Have you ever had a prayer that you've prayed over a long period of time and, and it hasn't come to be? Have you ever wondered if, if God's all-powerful and if his will is sovereign, what difference does it make if I pray? Why should we pray if God's just going to do whatever he wants to do anyways? These are really important questions. As a pastor for 10 years, I've had the privilege of walking with people through these really good questions. These are not questions to dismiss. These are not questions to shrug off. These are not questions to say, oh, just trust God. These are questions I believe that when we look at the Bible, there are real answers. But at the same time, it's really hard. Because not only have I walked as a pastor with people through this, but personally, I've walked through this struggle, this difficulty in these questions. I, I can remember when I was 16, I was really new to faith, and I started to pray for my dad, who isn't a Christian. And, and I, I've been praying for my dad ever since that day. It's been 15 years, and my father still is not a Christian. I, I can remember when I was 19, 20, my, uh, my, my aunt got diagnosed with breast cancer. And I remember praying and praying and praying and watching her continue to get sick. And then at the same time, though, I've had prayers for people to be converted and for other people to be healed. And I've seen it happen. I've seen people come to faith after I've prayed for them. I've seen sick bodies become well after I've prayed for them. And for as much as we wrestle with these questions, they actually affect who we see God to be. Because these experiences change our mind about God. And sometimes we take those experiences and form a picture of God instead of taking the word of God and forming a picture of God. You see, so we start to build a picture of who God is based off of our own personal limited experience. Instead of understanding we could be wrong here. Maybe God is somebody different than we're building him to be because the Bible's answers to our questions are always more nuanced than we would like. We're always looking for the black and white. We're looking for the yes and the no. And many times the Bible is black and white. Many times the Bible is very, very clear. But there are other areas where the Bible is very gray. For example, just thinking about prayer and God's providence, look at these two passages of Scripture. Psalm 135, verse 6, says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Now look at Matthew 6, 10, the Lord's Prayer. is the prayer we looked at last week in our series. Matthew's version, Jesus says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Wait, 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 hold on. Is God doing everything he wants in Psalm 135, or is God's will, are we to ask for God's will to be done? Which one is it? The Bible says, yes. You see, we want one or the other. We want God to be in a world of robots, or we want to be in a world of chaos. But the Bible says we're kind of in a world of both. We're kind of in a world where God's will is always to be done, and yet mysteriously we are to ask. Jesus tells you, pray that my will would be done. Pray that God's will would be done. Why would Jesus ask you to pray something that was already happening? You know, he's inviting you in some strange way to participate in the will of God that will be accomplished. 
It's this strange mystery. Are you ready to dive into the gray? (laughs) This is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. But I believe that we can come to some interesting conclusions about who God is, who we are, and where it overlaps in prayer. No better place to do that than with the story of a cow. (laughs) Exodus 32. If you've got a Bible, jump there with me. Exodus chapter 32 is the uh, second book in your Bible. And it'll be on the screens if you don't have it. And a little background on Exodus, because the Old Testament requires a little bit more background. This is the story of the freeing of the people of Israel. Uh, Christina, a couple of months ago, preached on the Exodus. And that story of God leading his people out from slavery into freedom. And as the people of Israel get into the free, uh, the, the they free, they're freed from the shackles of slavery. They don't go directly to the promised land, but they actually enter into this long period of waiting and wandering. And they go into the desert. And in the desert, the people of Israel become very um, anxious. I'll just use a light word. Uh, they, they become anxious, they become panicky, and they become honestly bored. And while Moses goes, Moses is their leader, and Moses is leading the people of Israel out, and Moses goes to pray and be with the Lord on the mountain. And the people of Israel, they don't want to go up to the mountain. They're like, you go for us. And, and Moses is meeting with God, and, and the Old Testament says that he spoke to God the way that a friend talked to a friend. It was the way a man would talk to another man. He was that close to God, and he was talking with God. And the people of Israel are down at the bottom of the mountain, and they start to get fidgety. And they say, you know, let's, let's make a God. Let's do something. And you see, if you've been reading the story carefully, you'll know that them making a God is in direct disobedience of some of God's black and white commands. God gave some very clear commands in Exodus chapter 20. He said, I'm going to give you these commands. And the first one he gives them, he says, he says I want to make this very clear. Make no, uh, have no other gods before me. And then the second command, he says, don't make anything that would resemble a God that you would worship. But in 12 chapters later, that's 20, we're in 32, they directly disobey this commandment. commandment. And they decide to make for themselves, pulling off their earrings and their bracelets and every gold that they have to melt the gold and to make for themselves a cow. And they make this cow and they decide to offer their sacrifices to it. And they actually start to say, this is the gods or these are the gods who freed us from uh, slavery, who freed us from Egypt. Direct contradiction to what God has done. And in this deep disobedience, the Bible almost says, It's like one of those old 70s TV shows. It's like, meanwhile, up on the mountain. (laughs) And it paints this picture for us in Exodus 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, they've corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. See, they're even ascribing the glory to the wrong gods. And the Lord said to Moses, look it, I've seen these people and behold it, it's a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone. Leave me alone. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I will consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now you might be thinking, whoa, that's harsh, and this is part of the reason why I don't like the Old Testament, but let's be super clear on a couple of things. Number one, God himself has been extremely patient up to this point. God himself has allowed for the people of Israel to offend his name already several times. 
And also God has long suffered with them through them being in pain and in slavery, and he has freed them out. So not only has God been patient, but God has been good because God has brought them out of the slavery of the Egyptians and into freedom. And secondly, God has been very clear. If you go back and read Exodus 20, he was super clear on what they needed to do, and it was pretty simple. Just 10 commandments, here's what you need to do, and the first two, they couldn't even hold on to them. And so if you're starting to think, this is why I don't like the God, well, what, you don't like the God who is just, patient, kind, the God who frees slaves? That is who this God is. He's also just. He's also the God who's going to bring justice. And so if you, you got to remember, when you're reading these little sections, you're reading a story. And you've got to go back and you've got to go forwards and you've got to read the context. Because when you read the context, you'll realize how slow and long-suffering God's love is for his people. And look at Moses, though. Moses knows this is who God is. And so he talks back to God. Because God says, let me alone, let my wrath burn hot. I just want to destroy them at this point. I want to consume them with my wrath. And Moses goes, I know the kind of God you are. Look at this. Exodus 32, verse 11. But Moses, and I would circle this word in your Bible, implored the Lord. And he says, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did we bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? He's like, you don't want the Egyptians to win after all of this. Turn from your burning anger and relent. Circle that word, we'll come back to it. From this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel. That's the history of the people of God. He says, remember all the generations. Remember all these people, your servants, to whom you, God, you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars in the heavens. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Now look at 14. And this is the verse we're going to use as a jumping off point. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people relented. The Lord relented. What does that mean? It's a Hebrew word that's used many, many times in the Old Testament. It is also translated as repent. It's also translated as to change your mind about something. Did God really change his mind? Because here's how I read the story. Mysteriously, here's what we know. God says, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy these people. Moses pleads, and God doesn't. This remarkable change in the reality of Moses' life happens before our eyes. God does this? Relent and repent and change? In fact, the Hebrew word would say that um, it's a way to be moved with compassion and change what you are to do. Now, this word is deep and mysterious, and it tells us something about God. That through our prayers... God changes his mind and changes his actions while never changing his character. Pay close attention. God changes his mind and actions while never changing his character. You see, sometimes two decisions are justified. Two decisions can be justified to maintain your character. This happens to you quite often. Imagine yourself to be waiting for a friend for a dinner. You're going to go out to dinner with your friend. They're 30 minutes late. You've been waiting, and 10 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes, 30 minutes goes by, you go, you know what, 
right as you get up to leave, your phone rings. And you answer the phone, and it's your friend saying, hey, I know I'm so late. I caught up in this and caught up in that. Something bad, you know, has happened, but I'm fine. Everything's cool. I'm going to be another 20 minutes. You've gone 30 minutes. You're going to go another 20. You're getting close to an hour waiting for your friend. Now, in order to be a good friend, would, not, would it not be justified for you to make one of these two decisions? One, get up and leave so that you're the friend who's not walked all over. Or two, to stay and be the friend of grace. Both would reveal the same character attribute of you. You're a good friend. Both would reveal a strong character attribute about you, a positive character attribute about you. Sometimes both decisions are justified. With God, this is happening all the time. Because everything God does is good. And when God has separate decisions to make and he humbles himself into time, oftentimes God has two decisions that he can make that can keep his character consistent. It doesn't change the fact that God is loving. It doesn't change the fact that God is holy. It doesn't change the fact that God is all-powerful, that God is completely sovereign and in control. That doesn't change. Because God, as we talked about last, le- last week, is a being so surpassing your ability to reason and so surpassing your intellectual mind and your wisdom that he's, he's able to do this. He's able to relent to change his mind while holding fast to his character. And this is not just an isolated instant. If you look throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's constantly changing what he does based off of what his people say and do. I put a little uh, number of verses. We won't go all through, of course, this time. But 2 Samuel and Jeremiah and Joel and Amos and Jonah, the story of Jonah, God changes what he does based off of Jonah's actions. And Jesus himself, as a human being walking around, reacts to people all the time. There's a moment with the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, this beautiful story, one of my favorite stories, where she comes back to Jesus and says, kind of comes back at him with something he says. And he says, you're right, your faith has made you well. He wasn't going to heal, and then he heals. You see, God is responding to us. Look at Dallas Willard's quote from The Divine Conspiracy, really uh, this philosopher, theologian, his masterpiece, a long quote, but beautiful. God's quote-unquote response to our prayers, it's not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayers when he's only going to just do what he wants to do anyways. You see, our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does regardless of whether we pray or not is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. The truth is this. Throughout Scripture, mysteriously, we see that God is sovereign and that prayer changes human reality. Prayer changes human reality. Do you understand how deep of the implications there are in this? Now, you might be thinking, well, Chris, this is just Moses. I'm not Moses, right? Chris, how, how like, you know, uh, presumptuous of you to believe that we could ever talk to God the way that Moses talked to God. He, wasn't he in a unique position? Since we're a community of deep thinkers here at Awakening, do you want to go on a journey? We're going to have to. In order to understand this, we're going to have to go through some theology here and understand the biblical story, the narrative which God is unfolding throughout our time. You see, when God started the world, uh, the story is recorded in Genesis 1 and 2. And in his creation of the world, you see, God decided the kind of world he wanted to make. You didn't decide that. 
I didn't decide that. He decided the kind of world he wanted to make. And when he made the world, he made these things called image bearers, human beings. And as he made the human beings, the very first thing he wanted them to do was to be fruitful and to multiply. Basically, make more of yourselves. And then he gave them something called dominion and authority over the earth. And he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put you in charge of the activities down here. But God never put them alone. God said, as you make and as you multiply and as you have authority, you're going to do so in partnership with me. That almost the earth was made and formed by and in partnership with God. That actually, as the earth increased in number and multiplied across the earth, and as human beings continued to rule the earth, God was constantly involved. But God was constantly handing jobs and handing things to people. If you remember in the creation story, he's like, Adam, why don't you name the animals? Why did God do that? Don't you think God could have named them? Don't you think God could have done that? Adam, you and Eve are going to get married, and I'm going to have you guys produce more humans. Couldn't have God just made more humans? You see, God chose the world he wanted to make, and he wanted to make a world of partners. He wanted to make the world of human partners. You see, God did not make a world of robots. He didn't make a world, like some of us want that kind of world. We're very simple people. We're like, God's in control. Everything happens, and I just do what he says, you know. That's not real life, though. Real life is not full of robots. We are not like plants who just like automatically grow and change and do stuff. We have consciences. We change what we do. We change our minds. We become rebellious. That God didn't create a world of robots. But God also, listen very carefully, he did not make a world of complete rebelliousness. Not, rebe- not rebels, not robots. He made a good world. He made a good world of partners that, listen very carefully, we rebelled against. The story of scripture is not the story of good and evil. It's a civil war. It's not a war of opposing forces of God creating good things and bad things. No, God creates a good world and the good world rebels against a good God. It's a civil war. It's a war that has been incited with rebellion and we've been grabbing people left and right and saying, see, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know his ways. We, we could question his ways. And as we've gathered people together, we've turned ourselves into rebels. But God made a good world and invited people to partnership. Read Genesis 1 and 2 very slow and very carefully. And you'll get to Genesis 3 and realize exactly what I'm talking about. Because the issue is this. As we have grabbed rebels, we have become terrible partners. You see, God invited us to partnership in Genesis 1 and 2. The Bible doesn't begin in Genesis 3 at the fall of man. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 and 2. And we have been invited into that story. And yet, we love the Genesis 3 story better. Where in Genesis 3, we get Adam and Eve saying, did God really say this? Did God really want this? I think it's best for me to ignore the ways of God and to do my own thing. To live my life, I love the way that scholar John Salehammer puts it. He says, the first couple, Adam and Eve, chose to be like God instead of with him. That's what you and I do every day. We want to be like him in this sense, powerful and autonomous without need of anyone or anything. And we have become horrible partners. Which is why through the Old Testament, you get these interesting moments, like these flashes, where God is like looking for partners in new ways. He's using his law to instruct partners. This is how you're going to partner with me. I'm going to actually, because you're such bad partners, I'm going to put a fence around it. Because, you know, I've been fine with you playing in, the, in this front yard, but you're going in the street. 
so we're going to put a fence here. And then we broke through the fence, and he's like, okay, I'm going to put another fence. You know, you're going to go in the backyard. (laughs) And he creates laws, more and more laws. But as he's creating more and more laws, there's these prophets speaking into the law and into the hearts of the people of Israel, and and they're saying this. One day, God will come in a new way to create new partners in a fresh way. Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36, they start talking about how the Spirit of God is going to pour out into individuals. That actually God himself will dwell with his people. I love the way Ezekiel puts it in 36, somewhere in verse 20, 26. He says this, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my ways. That actually God will invade the human body and inspire you to live a new life that you could never live on your own and become a type of person you could never be on your own. This strange thing starts to unfold, which is why when Jesus is born and starts his public ministry, people become amazed at this man. Because he's not just a man. Something's different about Jesus. Look at Luke 4, 36. It says, people were amazed. They're all amazed. They're saying to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Look at Luke 4, 14. Just a couple of verses before that, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and report about him went all throughout the country. You see, Luke actually is really good at this and the other gospel writers definitely mention this constantly, that Jesus was constantly doing the things he was doing, not quote-unquote because he was Jesus, but because he was quote-unquote filled with this thing called the Holy Spirit. See, our theology about Jesus is like our theology about Moses. It's weak in this. We think that Jesus and Moses are the exceptions. But what if they were the rule? What what if, what if at the heart of God was showing you the kind of life you could live in partnership with him? Something you could originally were made for maybe. Something that God created you to be, to rule with him in some ways. If you don't believe me, look at what happens after Jesus dies. He dies, he's resurrected, he comes in glory and power, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 7 and 8, he says this, it is not for you, pay close attention, it's not for you to know the times and se- or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. God's sovereignty. God is in control. But guess what? For all of us, you don't need to know about it. For all of us, God has fixed times and seasons of which you aren't to know about. It's okay. Why? Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. God's fixed in his power and God's empowering you. But you are not to dabble in the things of heaven. You are not to guess the ways of God. You are to live a powerful life in the Holy Spirit, God causing you to walk in his ways in partnership with him. You just have less information. And that's good news. If you had all the information, you would stress out. If you had all the information, you would be more stressed than not having the information. Believe me, if it would be a better life for you to have all the information on God's seasons and times, he would give it to you. He would be the first to hand it to you. And yet, God has withheld it from us, and strangely, we start to see after Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, at the coming of the Holy Spirit, we start to see something magnificent. 
all believers, all who claim the name of Jesus, become just like Jesus. They start to be filled with the same spirit Jesus was filled with. And Jesus, we realize, wasn't doing all the things he was doing, quote, because he was Jesus. And Moses wasn't doing all the things, quote, because he was Moses. But actually, they were doing the things they were doing because they were filled with God's spirit. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2 says. It says that he, he emptied himself and became nothing. He dismissed his rights as God. He says, I'm putting those on the side. Constantly, it happens all the time. People come up to Jesus, save yourself. People tell Jesus, rescue yourself, call down heaven. He says, no, no. He lives a life filled with the Holy Spirit. Praying and prayer is how we partner with God through the power of his Holy Spirit to change reality. Look at these verses I'm going to put on the screen, at the power of Jesus and the power of Jesus' followers. It's almost as if the gospel writers and the, and the writer of Acts is trying to convince us of something. You see, the same things Jesus does, his apostles also do. His disciples also do. And it's not just because they're super Christians. It's because they're all filled with the Spirit. See, Luke, um, a lot of scholars say, read Luke and Acts side by side. It's a great devotional activity if you want to do it. Read Luke chapter 1, then read Acts chapter 1 so on and so forth, you'll start to see a pattern happens. Is that Luke, who wrote both of those books, is trying to show you that the disciples are doing the exact same things Jesus is doing. You see, the only thing the disciples did is nobody themselves resurrected, which proved the divinity and power of Jesus Christ, which proved the ultimate authority with which he owns. But everything else, they did. Look at Jesus taught with tremendous authority that people commented on. So did the followers. Jesus powerfully was casting out demons. So did the followers. Jesus heals constantly. I couldn't even put verses. I mean, 90 plus times in your gospels is repeated that Jesus healed somebody or that healing was happening in some way or someone was requesting healing. The followers did the same. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Do you know there's two moments in the book of Acts where someone is dead and then brought to life through, quote, the power of the Holy Spirit. God is creating partners. That's why Paul was able to remarkably say this, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Are you kidding? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in believers today? It's not a different spirit. It's not a different God. It's not some weird thing that happened. It's the proof that God is partnering with his people, that God is here. He hasn't left, and he's here to empower you. That is the message that God is speaking throughout all of these things. Powerful Christians who are listened to by God and partner with him to change reality are not the exceptions. They're the rule. They're the way that God has designed this whole thing to work. And I see Christians walk around defeated, man. I, I, see, I see Christians shrink back when, when they should be stepping forward. I see Christians saying, it's just the way the world works. You don't know, Chris. You're, you're too young. You don't get it. It's just how things work. Instead of stepping into a power that God has invited them into through Jesus. And I see Christians think that that's just the way things are, and they put their feet up on the table, and it's over. And I say, no, this is the moment we pray. 
This is the moment we ask God. This is the moment we plead to God because we have been made partners with him. We're brought back to Genesis 1. We're, we're not in some, we're in a reconstructed relationship with God because of the reconciling work of Christ on the cross. That's what we're in. Nothing less. Nothing less than that. Friends, if you are in a Christian walk right now that is settling for less, I know God is inviting you to more this morning. God is inviting you to more. God is inviting you to his Holy Spirit. God is inviting you to partnership. Two enormous implications to close. With all that theology in our minds, there's enormous implications here. Number one, God will answer your prayer. His, your prayers will be answered. Because we're powerful partners, we can be sure that God will answer. Now, be, let me be clear here. An answer is an answer, and a request is a request. Let me, let me just tease this out for us. When we say God didn't answer my prayer, what we really mean is God didn't grant my request. God is not a genie. We talked last week. He's not a vending machine. He's not an ATM machine. He's, he is the living Father God who when we bring our request to him, oh, he answers. He just may not answer the way you want all the time. But because you're a true partner, we talked about this last week, go back, listen last week, we are true children of God. Allow God to be the true Father. In our teaching team meeting, I remember one of the people saying, you know, one thing I like when my kids talk to me, they know I got the final word. My kids say, um, <clears throat> you know when your kids want to like ask you for, I mean, or if you were a child, like I don't have kids yet, but I knew when I was a kid, I'd come up to mom and be like, <clears throat> oh mother, bountiful living and holy woman. You know, you would put on this because you knew she had the power to say yes or no. You see, when we come to God, we know he will answer, but we know he'll answer in a variety of ways, just like any good father would. You see, C.S. Lewis has this great little essay called Work and Prayer, and in it he said, if God responded to your requests every way you wanted him to, prayer would not be a gift, but a curse. That actually prayer would destroy you. You might say, well, why? Why would it destroy me? Because you feel like you know what you want. James 4 says this. When you ask, you ask wrongly. You don't always know the best thing for you, just like a child. A child who's constantly getting, offering requests to the parent, they don't actually know what's best for them, right? And we as the parents or we as the father or mother are going to generously and always give them what they need, but not always give them what they want, and sometimes what they think they want, they think it's what they need. And you have to instruct them and show them. And God is the ultimate good father. God has given himself as God. Be very clear about this. He is God. He is the one who has the discretionary power to say yes, no, wait. And I know it's all well and good in theological terms. But in personal terms, this is really hard. This is why I say this is an enormous implication. Is that while all prayers are answered, not all requests are granted. And I know that hits some of you in a difficult place this morning. And I would just encourage you to come back next week because we're going to talk about persistence in prayer. Is that sometimes we got to just keep praying, keep pressing in. And I know, I'm not saying this as some like 
yeah, deal with it. No, I'm, I'm telling you, this is an enormous implication. That God would actually give himself discretionary power to say yes or no. It's exactly how the Father acts. Secondly, God will show us the possibilities. Not only will he answer our prayers, but he'll show us the possibilities. And here, here's the point, guys. There's not much more I can tell you. This sermon is incomplete in this important way. You'll never know the truth of everything I've told you until you just pray. Until you actually ask God to change reality, to heal someone. Unless you start to pray for God to convert a soul or to pray for God to provide in a way you've never seen him provide before. There's a point where my sermonizing and my preaching, it's just, it ends. Okay, I can't, I, I wish it could all wrap it up in a sermon and you leave out here transformed to change. It just doesn't work that way. Like, you can't just listen to a sermon and get this. You have to watch God show you the possibilities. You actually have to, in faith, bring something to God that you could not do yourself. And that's where wisdom lies, is in this tension between God's sovereignty, your will, praying, making your request known to God, God do this, God do this, God do this, and just watching what he does. Over time, as you watch God respond to your requests and answer your prayers, wisdom is gained. It's not gained in a 30 to 40 minute sermon. You won't get it. And so just hear me tell you, you need to do work after this. You need to pray after this. You need to spend the time in worship actually praying to God. I mean, some of us come into worship and we just listen to songs. Man, you, you've got to go to the prayer team. We've got a prayer station up here. We're opening another one today, right now in the back, next to the, a new communion station. So if you don't feel comfortable coming up here, you want to go in the back, man, you need to go to the prayer team. Just pray with them and ask God, God, grant something new in my life. What, let me ask you this. What are you not asking God for and why? What are you not asking God for and why? Man, if... If you're not bringing something to God, what will it hurt? And also know this, you're not the only Christian here today. If you're just totally faithless, you got nothing to bring to the table, this prayer team's here for you. We're here for you. The beauty of the church is when you don't feel like praying, we'll pray for you. When you're not filled with faith, we'll be filled with faith. We'll make sure somebody's here to be who's filled with faith. That's the beauty of the body. I think at the bottom of the fear is this. The reason we do not pray for things is this sneaking suspicion that God is either not there at all or that he doesn't love us. Is that when we pray, we're afraid he's going to say no. And we're afraid that that no behind that no is that he doesn't love us. Or we're just afraid we're throwing prayers up to empty skies. This is not true and is a lie that is sown by the defense, the enemy. Because the truth is this, God loves you and God is here for you. How do I know that? The gospel writer John, when he was telling about the death of Jesus and the resurrection, he has this very strange detail. I know that God loves you, and I know that God hears your prayers, and I know that God is present with you today because of the way the Spirit has come. John's gospel says this in 1930. 
It says that when Jesus had received sour wine, he's on the cross, he's bleeding, he's suffering, he's dying. Jesus said this, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and look at this, he gave up his spirit. Now, just a chapter later in John 20, Jesus has risen from the dead, he's with his followers, and he says this, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he said, and he had said this, after he said this, he breathed on his disciples and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. How do I know that God loves you and God is with you? It's because Jesus gave up his spirit so that you could have it. Jesus bowed and breathed out so that you could breathe in. I know because Jesus historically died and resurrected in power. And because Jesus died and resurrected in power, he has given us his spirit so we can pray the prayer Paul prays in Philippians 4, at the bottom of a jail cell, the last place you would think that a man would be able to say words like this, was able to breathe in what God had breathed out, saying this, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let your requests be made known to God this morning, church. You've got work to do. But no matter the response to the request, look at this verse very carefully. At the end, make your request known. His peace is coming because his peace is already here. Let's pray. God, may we have your peace. God, we receive the peace of your Holy Spirit. If you're comfortable in your chair, just open your hands to God. And in your private space, or if you're with your spouse, open your hands and receive from God his Holy Spirit. God, ask God for his peace and his spirit. That prayer has already been answered in the cross. All we must do is receive. Lord, we have requests for you. There are people in this room that have serious needs. Change us as a church to be children who constantly bring our needs to you. We need you, O oh God.